if we only frame responsibility in terms of rich consumers and rich people and how they spend their money, we don't pay any attention to how they make their money. And it's that activity that could have way more carbon impact, way more climate impact. So again, if you have a CEO of a fossil fuel industry, they could be a vegetarian. They could take public transit. They could live in a dense urban, and they would have very low carbon footprint, but all of us would agree that they're horribly responsible for uh, climate change because of their role as an owner. And they spend more of their life as an owner organizing a global network of, of fossil fuel extraction across the world than they do as, you know, the even if they're a bad consumer, if they spend like an hour eating a steak or driving an SUV, they that's, that's a drop in the bucket compared to their role as a capitalist. Thank you for joining me again, Professor. Uh, this, I'm joined by today by Professor Matt Huber, uh, a professor of geography at the University of Syracuse in the United States. Uh, and Professor, you've recently written a book, uh, which is right here, which I won't move just for the sake of making making sure the product placement is kept nicely, but it's called Climate Change as Class War. Building socialism on a warming planet, which is a very, uh, a very sticky title, as um, as uh, a few would say. And uh, there's a few things in the title, obviously, uh, apart from the very uh, uh, the, the the red writing on the black cover, which is very stark. And as an Australian that's gone through bushfires, um, it really rings true of the essence of what is. Uh, uh, what are the catastrophes that are looming um, in, in, in the light of climate change, but also as well um, how you reintroduce or what I'd, I'd like to think reintroduce the topics of uh, leftist politics, socialism, Marxism, which I'm not not super familiar with, and yet I see it as being used as a uh, politically loaded term by certain political forces in what I perceive to be modern media. So I'm very keen to sort of get an understanding of leftist politics in a very conventional sense and how it will be applied to climate change. But to start with, uh, I would be interested, Professor, how did you arrive on writing the book and sort of what is the story of the book and what were your motivations for writing it? Yeah, so as I've th thought about it, since it was published, I realized that a lot of things converged for me in the year 2015 that I think led to the book. Um, the first most important thing is I became a father for the first time. I had a child, and it's almost cliche at this point, but many people point out that when you have a child, the climate crisis just becomes that much more real. I was contemplating uh, my daughter reaching retirement age in the year 2080 <laughs> and thinking about what the world and planet will look like for her at that at that uh, stage and just it's quite terrifying and so i um felt a kind of urgency and to be honest the book um is a bit <laughs> polemical and 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 i and i say i i approached uh writing it from a source of kind of anger and frustration because i feel like We've known about climate change for decades. Um, we've had all the uh, science uh, clear, and yet we've been sort of unable politically to mount any sort of um, substantial response to it uh, year after year. Um, so uh, that the, the book is kind of coming from this frustration from uh, the lack of act, real substantial political action. Um, but some other things were happening in 2015. Um, uh, 
I was also teaching uh, Marx's Capital. You know, it's this big book, Capital Volume One, and um, it really hit me that that book, uh, uh, just very briefly for your audience, really kind of starts off with an analysis of commodities and exchange and market relations. And then in the book, it takes this really important shift where it says, if we really want to understand where profit comes from and how capitalists make these profits, we have to shift from the market to what he calls the hidden abode of production. We have to go into the sites of production to see this kind of brutal, naked form of power uh, and the ways that capitalists exploit workers in factories, in production zones. And at that same time, you know, in 2015, um, most of the discussion of what we're going to do to solve the climate crisis was very much about markets and exchange, and we're going to get the prices right by inter internalizing the cost of emissions into the prices, and we're going to do carbon pricing, and we're going to solve this thing through exchange relations. And it really struck me that actually when you look at climate change through the lens of production, you go and you, and you look at actually huge industrial facilities like i cover in the book like nitrogen fertilizer production like there's no um there's just utter disregard and indifference toward the consequences of climate change from their perspective of the people who profit from and organize production in this way um and then finally um perhaps most importantly in 2015 a a an old uh socialist from vermont decided to run for president bernie sanders and uh and it really um catapulted socialism and socialist politics onto the scene in the United States, like how it just had not been uh, the case in in any significant way um, in my entire lifetime. So I, you know, I, I grew, came of age in kind of the classic sort of neoliberal period where right-wing politics was ascendant and, and there was no sort of sense that the left had a real alternative for capitalism. You know, it was Margaret Thatcher's era of there is no alternative and um, markets and capitalism were triumphant. And, and I was, you know, doing what's called Marxist geography. We would read our David Harvey and, re and read Capital and, and, and come up with a very sophisticated analysis of capitalism and its problems and critiques of capitalism. But still, even in my academic field, there wasn't much discussion of you know what we want instead of capitalism and 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 discussions of an actual socialist politics and so um i became much more interested in trying to think about well how what would a socialist climate politics look like and how can we kind of um um uh, uh sort of propose a, an alternative economic model to deal with the crisis yeah, well, I mean, first of all, congratulations on uh, being a father, and I commend you for writing this book out of uh, a sense of frustration. Um, as a, uh, I guess, on the border of being a millennial, but being a Gen Z person, I think uh, it's very encouraging to see people of academic rigor, as well as people that have an authority to speak on things, using that in the best possible capacity in order to fight climate change. Uh, and that's something I've sort of observed at the university I've attended and uh, even in the workplaces that I've attended that the political will uh, of uh, academics, of of career professionals is uh, is very hard to gain in order to fight climate because of all sorts of reasons. But I think more the more practical reasons that people are focused on the task on hand, which is their job. And it's very hard to sort of motivate and mobilize, uh, especially if 
certain forces are sort of pushing you in other directors or you have certain incentives. Um, but to sort of focus on a few things that you've mentioned. So I know there was, there was a book I read recently by John Monbiot, the um, Guardian writer, and it's a book called Politics in the Age of Reckoning. And he sort of constructs this uh, meta narrative of the past hundred years or say, where he sort of traces from the 40s, 50s, or 60s to like Keynesian economics, whereby you're using high high taxes to from the rich to sort of uh, to help society uh, be more equitable in the neoliberal age. And then he points out that after the GFC in the 2008, uh, where mm-hmm. there would usually be a swing in political narratives or political economic thought, or even uh, just a greater econ- a greater political thought, there wasn't a alternative narrative at the time that was feasible, mm-hmm. which I'd, mm-hmm. I think would be interested to get your take on. But I thought as overhaul, overall, uh, it rung very true to me that uh, there hadn't been a, uh, a viable alternative. And I suppose that's when you say people like Bernie Sanders, and I think even people that are running off the back of his campaign, I think there's a quite a young bloke in America who I think he was elected in Florida in the recent election. He's only 25 and he's sort of running on a similar Marxist campaign. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, I think that's quite interesting. Um and it'd be interesting to see uh, diving into Marxist thought as well as Marxist geography, which seems very niche and <laughs> super, super interesting. And um, but mm-hmm. just before that, I think it'd be good now to just get a, a sense of the thesis of your book. So it's mm-hmm. called "Climate Change is Class Warfare." Why mm-hmm. class warfare in particular? Um, mm-hmm. Perhaps for those that are not familiar with Marxist thought and have only heard it as a sort of ad hominem attack. Uh, if you could introduce people to the fundamental theory of yeah. of your of Marxism or how it ties into your book in particular, yeah. So um, the you know it basically the idea that climate change is a problem of class inequality is actually pretty um, common uh, sort of analysis that many non-Marxist researchers have pointed out. There is a famous um, report by Oxfam that sh- is called Extreme Carbon Inequality, and it shows, you know, the, the top 10% of the world, uh, the richest people are responsible for about 50% of emissions, and obviously the poorest are, are least responsible. Thomas Piketty, the sort of famed economist of inequality, has done similar analyses of kind of the inequality of, of, of carbon uh, footprints and uh, relationships. But... Um, what I was sort of un, uh, 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 seen from those types of analyses is all their their focus is on the role of rich people spending money and consumption on uh, uh, you know cars and flying and meat and whatever and and then attributing emissions and responsibility to those what are called consumption based footprints and um, this is just the sort of standard way in which carbon responsibility is analyzed and thought about. Um, but uh, so the the vision of class from that perspective is purely just focusing on people's income and their consumption and lifestyle practices. But a Marxist theory of class is extremely different. It really has not very much to do with consumption at all. It has to do with basically what you own and, and what you control to generate your, uh, to generate the money that you use to consume later. And it's classically defined as what is your relationship to the means of production, right? And so there's a small group in society that really lives off the ownership of capital or property who um, own and control 
production systems. Um, you could think of like a CEO of a fossil fuel uh, company, or um, I profile the fertilizer industry. And so those people who are owners, um, they're a very small minority of, of society. And then the rest of society um, is all they own really is their labor power, their capacity to work. And they sell that on a market for a wage or a salary. And so that's the vast majority of society under capitalism is, is people that don't own really much, but their capacities to work and they, and they survive through selling those capacities for a wage. Um, and so what I, what I sort of discovered is that when you shift your class and analysis towards this kind of Marxist focus of ownership and production and profit, you come to really different conclusions about who is responsible for the um, the crisis. I mean, one thing uh, we could point out is that um, the very idea of a carbon footprint linked to people's individual consumption actions was invented by British Petroleum. So the companies who own production, who profit off production, they're even they're tweeting out these carbon footprint calculators, asking people to learn how they can you know, uh, help with climate change individually. And so they are very keen on spreading this narrative that responsibility is really diffuse. It's all of us and our diffuse kind of consumption behaviors that are responsible. Um, uh, the, but there's another just basic ways of looking at this that, uh, you know, when you are a consumer and you say you drive a car and you're emitting carbon, you know, um, should you actually be 100% responsible for those emissions when there are other capitalists who have sold you that fuel, who sold you the car, who sold you the tires, they're making money and profits off that exchange relationship. And, and so therefore, this carbon footprint uh, method of attributing responsibility just erases the role of these what I call profiteers who actually profit off these relationships. Um, the owners and so forth. And then the final thing is that if we only frame responsibility in terms of rich consumers and rich people and how they spend their money, we don't pay any attention to how they make their money. And it's that activity that could have way more carbon impact, way more climate impact. So again, if you have a CEO of a fossil fuel industry, they could be a vegetarian. They could take public transit. They could live in a dense urban, and they would have very low carbon footprint but all of us would agree that they're horribly responsible for uh, climate change because of their role as an owner. And they spend more of their life as an owner organizing a global network of, of fossil fuel extraction across the world than they do as, you know, the even if they're a bad consumer, if they spend like an hour eating a steak or driving an SUV, they that's, that's a drop in the bucket compared to their role as a capitalist. And so um, really this whole narrative of inequality, carbon inequality is really erasing the role of owners and capitalists in production. And so I felt like it was really useful to, to, um, to take this um, lens towards that. And then uh, we'll talk more about it, I'm sure. But I also sort of noticed that, um, you know, the people driving uh, climate politics and advocacy also come from a particular kind of class of people in our capitalist society. And I categorize them as professional class people that sort of have, uh, are highly educated and might work in you know science or academia or, uh, or non-governmental organizations. And then finally, like uh, classic Marxist politics is really trying to 
build a broad-based uh, unified working class politics that tries to channel kind of the majority of society that, um, again, doesn't own much. They have to work in very low-wage, precarious types of occupations. And it's uh, Marxist theory that it's really those the, the working class that has real power in a capitalist society that no other force really has. And so, therefore, like trying to think about how to channel that power that the working class has toward climate solutions seemed like a, a useful way to kind of take this Marxist class theory to the climate crisis. Absolutely. I mean, you've said a lot there, Matt. So maybe just to fo focus on a few things. Um, I think as a as a as a very actively engaged consumer in terms of wanting to you know purchase the right things, doing the right things, I think it can almost liberate our liberate all of us who are, who are you know active climate consumers. I guess to use the phrasing, to focus not only on the the ways that we can avoid. Um, way purchasing or moving our political capital to to um, businesses or to services that are maybe not not uh, not feasible for for long-term environmental use but also focusing on the root solutions so obviously there's a there's a there's a theory of thought called systems thinking whereby you examine the whole system and to me it seems that the what i would characterize and perhaps you would characterize it slightly different but a deliberate obfuscation of what is truly important in the climate crisis, which is focusing on the people that have the political power to actually change how a system operates, yeah. um, even if it uh, even if it impacts the bottom line. And this is of particular interest to me as a business student slash graduate uh, who um, in, in traditional business schools, it's still taught today that bo the bottom line is that you need to increase the value of the shareholders of shareholders. That's it. And uh, ESG is taught now and all these sorts of fairy greenwash terms. But at the end of the day, it doesn't mean it doesn't mean anything because if the underlying principle is shareholder value, then companies that, you know, cement companies and steel companies, for example, which I think contribute around 15% of emissions, they will continue to, 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 uh, do business as usual and they won't change. And so I think a focus on the production side is, uh, I find is very liberating from a consumer mm -hmm. perspective, but it's also a big relief as well, because it is a, uh, if to use a metaphor, it's all, it's almost like we're in a big Western film and there's those two characters that are about to go for the holster and the gun, mm -hmm. the gun and the holster. And one of them wins, but only to find out that the person they've shot is, uh, in effect, not the right person. It's we're focusing on the consumer side of things uh, and not the production side. And there's also interesting philosophies which have sort of developed from that. So I don't know if you've come across, but there's a philosophy sort of similar to egalitarianism called limitarianism, mm -hmm. where similar to the idea that, you know, there shouldn't be anyone that is below a certain uh, income level, we should also cap the maximum level of income for everyone in the world. Um, and this is perhaps a bit more radical view, but sort of one that is shared by uh, economists like Georgos Kallis, which I know that you have a, 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 a disagreement on in degrowth. So I'd be happy to sort of jump into that in a second. Mm -hmm. But um, I also, uh, I think that's also important on focusing on that working class and that professional class perspective. But before I jump into all those uh, f fascinating topics, uh, I've sort of, characterized the reason it's uh, we've not focused on production side economics and policy is because of deliberate obfuscation so you know citing books like uh, 
Merchants of Doubt or The New Climate War by Michael Mann. Mm-hmm. Would you characterize it as a deliberate obfuscation? Is this has the focus on consumer side been explicitly deliberate, or has this sort of just been the nature of how politics has played out? I think um, there is some deliberate nature to it. I mean, I, like I said, like you got British Petroleum literally coming up with the idea of a carbon footprint, spreading that narrative that, you know, like it's up to individuals to um, solve the crisis. And so, um, but one thing I think that's that's interesting is, again, that Marx calls it the hidden abode of production because it is hidden. <laughs> it is sort of out of sight. Yeah. Uh, and particular, particularly, you mentioned, and this is you know my go-to example, like steel, cement. These, in, in many ways, like in a lot of industrialized global North countries, those are not only hidden uh, from the neighborhood; they're they're offshored in, entirely. So they're, mm. you know, we live in global, the age of global production chains, and so, um, and and even if they are visible, they are, as Mark said, they are they have a sign on no admittance except on business so they're mm. private property they're you're not allowed in uh if you're a journalist for instance if a scientist i was very lucky and it's a long story to get access to a private corporate fertilizer factory to learn mm. what goes on in there but that's not common for academics or journalists to get get even access so um one thing i think is particularly uh in the global north countries we live in um, a consumer-based economy, mm. we are living our lives in that world of consumption where we um, we use our salary, our income to basically acquire commodities we need to survive. And um, we then are provisioning our needs, right? And I think it's, as you said, like all of us try to do the right thing as consumers. And the way capitalism is, is we actually aren't very free in our workplaces, you know, we have to do what the boss says. We have, uh, we have to basically go with uh, whatever the owners are saying we have to do. But in our consumption world, we are, we have some, you know, freedom contention on how much money we have, and and so we have choices, we have agency, and so there's a reason why under capitalism people put a lot of interest and effort on that side of things because it feels like the only place where we have any kind of agency. So. Um, and and so there is some some sort of educational thing we can learn by at our lives as consumers. But one of the points I try to make in the um, book is that capitalist owners, like you said, like in this is in training and business schools, they're not like you and me. They're not trying to provision their needs or do the right thing for the world through their choices. They're they they have to as a as a as a sort of fiduciary responsibility to maximize mm. shareholder value and to accumulate capital and grow and and maximize profits and that focus is not like you and me when we're out in consumer world we're mm. uh that's very different sort of orientation and and if it as it hap- if it happens that it's really the people that own and uh and, and are profiting off um various forms of production are really the ones driving the climate crisis, then unfortunately, we really have to put a lot more attention on them. And (laughs) and sometimes I worry that all the attention we put on uh, the consumers and and people in their everyday lives is, again, helpful and educational. But it's like, like you said, it's like taking your eye off the real enemy or the real driver Mm -hmm. of the problem. And, and, And again, when that driver is somewhat hidden from us, 
in, in our everyday lives, it, it's sometimes you got to do, and that's what Marx actually says, like we have to go beyond the surface of everyday life and sort of analyze what's driving the system, what's beneath the surface. And, and so I think um, that's not always self-evident to a lot of people. Mm, yeah, for sure. I mean, even just in your descriptions of um, Marx, it seems like he's very prophetic, uh, especially today. Um, and I, I'm very curious as to what the actual criticisms are of Marxism on a fundamental level, because everything you're saying is a, it's appealing to me on a very deep level. But anyways, I, I, uh, I, 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 it definitely resonates with me in terms of the ideas of maximizing capital uh, as a business student. Um, and what I find particularly troubling uh, in the language that is taught in business schools, and, I, and this is not to say this is some sort of nefarious plot, or, although it may be, but I don't think it is, um, whereby the language that is taught, particularly in finance, uh, I don't think it is overtly uh, training students to be capitalists, but fundamentally what happens is they come out as capitalists. And I think a really good example of this at least in my personal life, is the 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 field of consulting. Um, I think as business students, consulting is sold as the the apex of 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 being a career professional. You you get to graduate right out of business school with a very big salary. You go straight into the boardrooms of companies where you're solving really important problems. But I think the the even the framing of it as solving important problems is the perhaps where. Um, problems begin to fester and begin to expand where in my view uh, seeing things as simply as problem solving and as a way to help make businesses money sort of distracts us from what's really important which is I guess as you point out in your book as I've as I've understand is fundamentally it comes down to carbon emissions mm -hmm. um, and no matter how much value you create for a business, Ultimately, if every business is is emitting more than than it is sequestering, that is a very big problem. Mm -hmm. um, and no amount of no amount of public policy, or actually, no public policy can help. But if there is no public policy, it, uh, businesses will continue to do as as they will. And this has been mm -hmm. a, a very fundamental problem in Australia, whereby the past ten years we've had a government who have delayed climate change. And in 2013, our prime minister was actually a climate denier, very, very explicitly so. Um, and as a result, you know, our emissions were uh, were pretty, well, they were going down, but it's very, very nominally so. And uh, they even dismantled a carbon tax. So Australia's government is the first government to actually dismantle a carbon tax, which is uh, 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 not a very good legacy. But the new government, which is a, a Labor government, is doing, uh, is taking big strides in sort of restoring that, but sort of observing that dynamic whereby the private sector is sort of taking lead and the people itself are taking lead, I find to be optimistic. And maybe as a Marxist, you would agree that it's the power, where, the people where power lies, and that's where action uh, truly happens. But um. You touched on professional classes. Um, I, I'm, I'm what you would call a professional class now. I work a full-time job in an office. And uh, it's been very interesting observing the dynamics and the, I guess, the roadblocks, you would say, preventing action. I'm on my company sustainability group, um, you know, participate in all these sorts of things. And yet I feel uh, very frustrated and angry 
um, mm -hmm. because of the lack of material action, I would say. Um, but that's not only shared by my company. That is, and to be fair, my company is leading in, in many ways. And yet, I think in the in the whole scope of climate, as you point out, if emissions is, what is it, 420 parts per million at the moment, which is ink or something like that, which is incredibly significant. If it's only going up, it's a problem. So how does professional class tie into climate change and how, how does the working class tie into that as well? So um, the, the professional class is, I started to, again, notice that when you look at who are the most vocal and who are the people that are organizing and advocating around climate issues, it tended to be from a particular type of class and cultural background of highly educated people. And I define the professional class as those that you know, marshal credentials in the labor market to carve out some sort of advantages. And, um, uh, you know, I, I try to basically isolate two kind of um, ways of approaching climate politics that I think are highly appealing to professionals, or maybe I'll, I'll cover three, but um, uh, that are highly appealing to professional people, but don't really have the capacity to really resonate with and appeal to the vast majority of, of working class people. Because even in Australia and the United States and, and Europe, like when you actually think about who has credentials and who has things like degrees who are able to carve out these advantages, it's a minority of the population. In the United States, something like uh, close to two thirds of adults do not have a college degree. And so the, the vast majority of people are uncredentialed, are working in very precarious, low wage types of occupations, either in the service industry or in the in sort of various forms of manual labor, whereas the professional class is often working in what we call the knowledge economy, you know, working in an office, working with um, ideas. And um, and that is in itself kind of also a point I make in the material sense that they're kind of separated from the industrial production systems that uh, are causing climate change and they kind of approach it as from this very distanced way. But anyway, let me get to um, the first uh, the first sort of classic way in which professional educated people approach climate change is that it's a problem of knowledge and believing the science right and and the real and and you know it is a serious problem to have a climate denier as your leader in australia or we had we've had plenty of climate deniers um but ultimately this kind of politics of belief science and sort of uh really putting science and credentials really appeals again to highly educated people but I'm not sure it really has has a huge capacity to meet everyday working people in their in their more material lives, what they're struggling to pay rent and things like this. You know, the the yellow vest movement in France had this this slogan where politicians care about the end of the world, but we're trying to meet the end of the month, right? And so they're dealing with rent and uh, utility bills and and the cost of living crisis and and this idea of like science seems very removed from that. And and I argue that it really um, allows the right anti-climate, the climate deniers, to be the ones that are channeling class politics by always citing the economics of the problem. They say that, you know, these climate things like carbon tax, it's gonna raise the price of energy, it's gonna cost jobs, it's gonna ruin your life as a as a as a hardworking uh, person. 
and it, and and this politics of science really doesn't have an answer to that class politics from that the right throws at us all the time and even more so the second kind of ways in which professionals will approach is that it's really a problem of policy and that we need to design really clever technocratic policies that can uh, solve climate change in these very complicated ways. So I talk a lot about in the book of carbon pricing and various cap and trade schemes and carbon taxes and carbon dividends and all this kind of, again, te highly technocratic, highly complicated policy regimes that are, again, meant to kind of elegantly sort of create the right incentives and create the right price structure, but never really ask themselves, are we asserting a climate politics that might appeal to and be popular with the masses of, of working people? And again, once again, uh, you know, it's been proven time and time again that carbon pricing is not particularly popular. <laughs> you know, in the United States, they tried to pass carbon tax in a very liberal state of Washington and it failed by huge margins most time. It's very easy for the the fossil fuel industry to organize against these carbon taxes because they can just say it's going to make your energy costs more and and it's hard and sometimes they try to like create these complicated you know redistributions of income to make it not cost more but ultimately it's um it's not a real easy to understand winning uh political message um and then the last thing i argue is that because professional class people their ultimate class project is about is about sort of using credentials to obtain a kind of semblance of middle class or economic security uh they often can be in sort of relatively material comfortable circumstances and what i argue is that's a real contradiction for climate aware environmentally aware uh professional class people because they have this comfortable lifestyle and they consume a fair amount but they're doing so while the world is burning and they feel this sort of guilt, I call it carbon guilt, this kind of carbon guilt about their complicity in the climate crisis. And they, and so instead of really blaming the real people who are in power, like the owners of capital really driving this crisis, they blame themselves and they kind of create this kind of, again, very moralistic politics about uh, carbon uh, footprints and lifestyle actions and lifestyle politics. And, and, and even, uh, I'm sure we'll talk about it later, um, I think, uh, if you look uh, at a lot of writing on the sort of uh, radical um, uh, environmental left in terms of degrowth and stuff like that, it, it has traditionally focused a ton on the problem of consumerism and consumption and this mass consumer society, which again has its problems and there's critiques to be had there, but again kind of takes a lot of the eye off of the the owners, the production, the thing, what I would argue is really causing. and and. And if we want to tackle the real cause, we actually have to build a politics that appeals far wider to a broader majority of society and doesn't just appeal to the highly minority, uh, uh, highly educated professionals who um, who oftentimes in, in political advocacy kind of talk to one another and speak to one another. And they're oftentimes really preaching to their own choirs of, of this kind of climate moralistic politics that that and and oftentimes i wish that people would just be a little more reflexive about the limits of their of their politics and how they need to build a politics that's not just so insular and inward looking that needs to look outward towards the broader masses of of working people and what their struggles are mm. yeah well 
I mean, I commend you for that fun, uh, that fantastic analysis as uh, uh, I see it. I mean, the, uh, on the, on the, on the point of credentialism and working class people, uh, th- perhaps, perhaps uh, correct me if I'm wrong, professor, but I sort of see this as a fundamental, not, not even a denial, maybe it is a denial, but, uh, whereby, uh, political movements, uh, are sort of presented with problems in their campaign. So for example, I think that Donald Trump's campaign in America in 2016, the Brexit campaign in America, whereby you have vast numbers of people, particularly working class people that have one particular viewpoint and the professional classes have a completely different viewpoint and the, the working class viewpoint wins in a sense. So in America, Donald Trump was elected largely in based on rural as well as I think some marginal city seats. Um, and yeah. Brexit, I, as I understand it, was one because of people in the country, people outside the cities, not the professional classes, but the working classes. And the analysis of the professional classes is to say, well, these people are stupid. They don't, they don't really understand it. And it is the hubris of the professional class, as I see it, to acknowledge that in order to have any sort of successful political movement, you have to unify power and not, uh, I guess, divide, as I see it. Um, there's another, there's a fantastic book which I highly recommend you read if you haven't already read it called The Tyranny of Merit by mm-hmm. Professor Michael Sandel. And he, ha- he has this analysis in his book where he paints such a, a vivid picture. And for those who haven't read it, essentially he argues that uh, the, uh, particularly in America, by using the example of Donald Trump's election, that it is the credential class who, by focusing on merit in a very technocratic sense, as you put it in terms of technocratic policy, mm-hmm. um, sort of it it removes any color or shade from the definition of merit and reduces it to a very purely economic lens Mm -hmm. and by doing so it means that politics uh uh the the politics has been reduced basically to economic and uh and sort of professional class speaking points that don't really appeal to anyone outside the professional class um and so uh I feel very uh, energized or um, uh, very motivated about what you're saying. And, and at the same time, I'm also very interested in how we can get working class people on our side. And I say that as if they're some sort of distant person, which I've never met, which I think maybe is indicative of the problem. Yeah. You're, you're covering something that's um, not just in, in uh, sort of Trump and America. It's, it's actually uh, a process that, Again, Thomas Piketty and other researchers, political scientists have identified that in uh, particularly Europe and, and I imagine in Australia, too, that these these parties that used to be the parties of the working class, labor parties, social democratic left parties, have seen their base shift from the working class toward these kind of affluent, highly educated uh, voters, um, professionals, uh, and that's become the base. Now, the problem for those parties, as they find, is that base is, again, in a, in a minority of society. And it tends to be a highly activated minority. They vote a lot. They're very invested in politics, but it's not the majoritarian basis. And so the working class uh, uh, in, in these countries has been shifting more to the right. Um, mm. 
and again, they, they, they take a, Marxists wouldn't agree with this, they take a pretty uh, sort of educational theory of class where, you know, non-college educated are the working class and they're the majority and college educated or university educated are the minority um, professional class. Um, but I, I do think there's, you know, that's a proxy for some some sort of broadly Marxist version mm. of the working class that that actually, you know, again, in the United States, if 63% don't have a college degree, you can bet most of them are probably wage workers. They're probably uh, working in pretty low wage and precarious mm. types of circumstances. Um, and, you know, um, it wasn't, it's not, and, and, and it's also that the working class itself is divided um, between these types of parties because these center left parties are still like in the United States, the democratic party is still able to get a good amount of votes from, mm. uh, from non-college educated working class voters of color, for instance, although the 2020 elections had a lot of those people shifting in increments mm. towards the right and towards Trump really alarming ways. The New York times did this analysis of, of urban because we, we, you know, like you said, we think Trump mm. is a rural, a rural vote, but they showed that urban, immigrant communities in big cities like New York, mm. Chicago, San Francisco were shifting to Trump in droves. Um, mm. But anyway, for the most part, a lot of voters of color in these kind of uh, uh, working class categories were voting for the Democrats, where a white working class were voting for Trump. So from a Marxist perspective, we want a unified, <laughs> uh, mm. a majority working class that's sort of all on the same page. And that's kind of, again, you were mentioning this kind of arc of history of 20, 20th century politics. There was a time in not just the U.S., but many uh, uh, of these countries where we were able to stitch together a kind of working class politics that align with a certain kind of party infrastructure. And that's now just sort of uh, de-aligning, right, as uh, mm. people call it. There's sort of this this sort of um, de-alignment process where uh, the working class is divided, the professionals are sort of in their little affluent mm. enclaves, very, very um, smugly, like, uh, <laughs> like, I mean, like they have all mm. the right ideas and, and they're very smart. And like you said, that they, they oftentimes have these very sort of condescending ideas of the masses that are just sort of dumb and ignorant. Mm. Um, I remember, you know, I work in academia. I remember I was with a colleague at an event and she told me she, she would prefer that the masses aren't allowed to vote in our country. Because they're so <laughs> yeah. Just like, are, aren't we supposed to believe in democracy here? Yeah. Um, so, uh, so it's a real problem. But um, and so that's you know that's what I'm trying to get us to think about. To mm. how could a, if we have a climate politics that 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 currently really only appeals to these highly educated minorities? What would a climate politics look like for the broader majority? Mm. Yeah. And as I see it as well, just to add on to that, it, I think it it it, uh, in, it uh, pushes us towards not being lazy, it, us being professional classes, and thinking that if we can appeal to one sort of voting a group of people, you know, people that are gone to university and go through more, uh, go to uh, more like traditional office jobs or even go into academia, saying that uh, there's actually more people to us. So it's just sort of, I guess, a point of awareness. And uh, which seems so uh, simple, and yet I can sort of understand why it may have taken not so simple steps to get there. Um, I also, uh, just sort of whilst you were speaking, I was just thinking about 
um, how I was sort of uh, describing working class people as if they're sort of some off living on some sort of distant other planet. I was also thinking in that moment, uh, well, it's really important to get them on board because then we can sort of win the climate war. Uh, and then I also had another thought, well, then I'm sort of viewing them purely instrumentally. Mm-hmm. And I think that, I don't know if you would agree, is that, I imagine that is also a problem because uh, we need to ensure that we are truly uh, creating the best livelihood for all, including the working class. I mean, that's sort of a given, maybe I'm, I'm sort of feel a bit embarrassed now, but <laughs> but like I, 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 uh, I sense that that instrumental view is quite indicative of professional classes or perhaps that's just mm. me being a business student trying to think how I'm more, you know, how I can make it, make, make turn everything into a sort of a advantage. Um, anyway, uh, so, so, yeah, so you go. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think it, there, what you, what you're mentioning is a real problem where there is this sort of cultural, uh, um, uh, chasm <laughs> between mm. people that do sort of end up in these, highly educated, uh, you know, they live in the same neighborhoods. They obviously hang out in the same social networks. They're on the same social media together. So they, you know, we talk about it as a bubble. People are in these bubbles where they don't really know there's a wider world of mm-hmm. people that aren't like them. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's, it's, it's just uh, a real problem. And even, you know, in, in the United States, we've been trying to rebuild a kind of socialist politics. And we've been doing it through particularly an organization that exploded since Trump was elected called Democratic Socialists of America. And we found there too, the people that join the DSA, the people that come to our meetings, the people that are involved in organizing, all tend to be highly educated. Although we often refer Mm. to them as college educated, downwardly mobile people that, you Mm. know, are saddled with a lot of student debt or working low wage jobs because they can't find a good professional class job. So, Mm. but it's still the same type of cultural people who are sorted into this kind of socialist activism uh, Mm. alongside other culturally similar people. So Mm. one way we try to deal with that is, uh, you know, when we do campaigns, we try to make sure we go out and mm. it's called canvas, knock doors and talk yeah, to yeah. just ordinary people about the issues we're fighting for and try to kind of understand what their concerns are and try to like listen and or and organize through listening. Um, but um, it's, it, but it's, that's a different story than just, particularly if it's an electoral campaign, just like knocking their door every couple of years to vote for this person, you know, how to get these people. Uh, and again, into our organization to get, to get the organization itself to be of and by the larger working class. That's, that's something that DSA has been, uh, um mm not really able to figure out it's because it's really hard there's this gulf there's this chasm but i will say i mean you said it's instrumental to think about how do we get uh the the working class on board i mean i would say it's just politics like we Mm. you know if we want to win politically we have to think about how can we reach the larger masses of society and Mm. and sure i mean politics is kind of instrumental you have to just be like uh very means to an end right to win mm. right um but the the crazy thing to me though is that so many people um in these professional class contexts aren't even asking the question about how we can reach broader audiences they're so enveloped in these sort of silos of, of mm. advocacy and organizing uh that they that they and that they uh don't think about you know well what would it mean to to articulate a much broader based uh uh mass majoritarian uh, politics mm. So. Yeah, for sure. 
I, I suppose it's one of the the most interesting sampling bias uh, sampling biases that you could sort of construct. Um, Absolutely. So there's a few things now. So I, I have two thoughts. So obviously we can sort of dive in more into the solutions of of your book because uh, um, as I see, as I've understood and read about your book. Uh, a lot of people are sort of uh, saying that this is sort of like a manual for leftists, uh, for leftists, or I guess people that are more Marxist leaning on how to sort of proceed in the age of 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 uh, of capital and and sort of in climate in particular. Um, but even just before then, I'd be interested to know. Uh, so in Australia, we have our two parties. We have the Liberal Party, which is our, I guess, a conservative party. And then we have the Labor Party, which is our, uh, what you'd call Democratic Party in the United <laughs> States. And the Labor Party, as as is in the name, has historically been a very working class oriented party that focuses on uh, unions. So Australia has a very big union movement um, and focusing on more um, on the ground issues uh of everyday people um in as i've seen culturally uh uh in australia i think the the sort of shift towards the right although we've had a conservative party party been elected for the past 10 years um i don't know how I don't. I haven't seen any research to see how big the shift has been from working class people to more right leaning parties. Um, I wonder. And obviously, you were mentioning for America, that's definitely been the case. How do you appeal to these maybe voters that are formerly labor voters that are working class people that used to vote, I guess, democratic, uh, more democratic or socialist, but have swung to the other side of the spectrum? How do you get? How do you appeal to those people? Because to me, it seems like it is very much a uh, like I said before. It seems that being labelled as a Marxist is now an ad hominem in these in certain political circles, um, and and so any even utterance of the word uh, uh, leaves people like, oh, that's you know, I don't want to be associated with it. But obviously, it does, it's, it seems to be very working class uh, centric uh, in its sort of philosophy. So how do you appeal to those uh, to, to working class people? Yeah, I mean, it's it was a long time ago, but in the early late 19th, early 20th century, there were Marxist oriented parties that um, built up mass working class support. Um, and particularly that sort of classical example is the Social Democratic Party of Germany. And they had, you know, they had a huge base of 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 working class support and the theory is um you know I, I i'm probably dumbing it down and simplifying it but it's basically this idea that under capitalism the vast majority of working class people are highly exploited by capital and they have a material interest in gaining more secure access to the the basics of a good life and so the the idea is that politically you want to make sure to appeal to the material interest of the broader working class when you arrange your politics and in the early marxist labor parties you know they they fought for they you know they fought for you know a revolution in in an abstract sense but they also fought for like shortening the working day they fought for uh laws that would make workplaces safer for workers and things like this um and which you know um so they appealed to the direct kind of material interest so what i argue in the book is that um the broader when we talk about the what are the material interests of workers under capitalism 
um, I tried to point out that what defines the working class under capitalism from an ecological standpoint is that they're, you know, torn from any ecological guarantee of their life. Uh, and, and, and Marx actually tells the history of capitalism as tearing the majority from the land in a process he describes as proletarianization, sort of tearing people from a direct subsistence relationship to the land and forcing them to then, mm -hmm. as a matter of survival, to have to sell their labor power for a wage to capital who then exploits them. And so this this uh, this sort of severing of the people from ecology mm -hmm. and from the means of life itself creates a fundamental insecurity for the mass of the working class to just obtain the basics of life. Again, those end of month struggles that the yellow vest are talking about paying rent, paying mm -hmm. for your utilities, for your energy. This is exhausting. It's stressful. It's it's a real struggle to just make ends meet in under capitalism. And mm -hmm. so what I what I argue is that um, a, a broader working class climate politics would just try to appeal to those basic material needs that people face every day. So and, and, and the convenient thing is that many of the of the sectors that we need to aggressively decarbonize, uh, basically energy, um, uh, transportation, housing, food and agriculture, all these things are the core basic material mm -hmm. needs of working class people. And so when when we, we think about building a climate politics and a climate program that would be about giving people secure access to those basic needs, um, under the banner of climate and decarbonization of those sectors at the same time, then you might have something that could really uh, uh, appeal to and reach those people. And again, it wouldn't be, it wouldn't have to be about even believing the science or it wouldn't have to be about um, this kind of moralistic politics of mm. reducing your carbon footprint. And it would just appeal to people's struggles and materially to survive under a really increasingly barbaric capitalist system uh and so um uh but of course you know this was sort of the idea of a, a green new deal of trying to kind of combine the crisis of inequality with the crisis of climate change and build a kind of climate politics that 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 did offer these kind of material gains the mm. problem is that if you don't win that kind of program and in, in, into power and start delivering material gains under the banner of climate action, you're not going to be able to sort of catalyze that theory of change into existence. And I think mm. we discovered that with like the Bernie Sanders campaign and Corbynism in Britain, um, mm. that, you know, you might have a lot of cool ideas about, you know, a Green New Deal on paper, but if you don't actually win and deliver those things, you're not going to, the working class is going to mm. be quite cynical about your capacity mm. to deliver those types of promises. And, you know, my mm. experience knocking doors for Bernie Sanders is everyone's like, yeah, free healthcare, a Green New Deal, it sounds great. It's just never going to happen. And so you have this kind of cynicism and resignation. Yeah, right. And so um, unfortunately that the history of, of, of building working class politics is not really, it's not really done through magic, through an electoral uh, mm. cycle. Like we elect Bernie Sanders and then working class politics comes back in existence. You have to do the kind of nitty-gritty organizing of unions and mm. things like working class parties that actually have infrastructure in people's everyday lives that are folded into communities and neighborhoods and and once that infrastructure starts to win things and deliver things you can sort of build up to a more broader electoral type of outcome but but mm. it takes a lot of organizing it takes a lot of work and it's not easy it's very hard 
Mm -hmm. Yeah. And just on the first point you're making about sort of separating people from, I guess, uh, ecology and what uh, a point I sort of realized, uh, or perhaps you mentioned this, but it just sort of came to me now is that uh, a lot of professional classes, uh, as I see it, they all live in urban areas. They live in cities. Yeah. And one of the biggest problems I'm finding uh, trying to sort of find my uh, ecological, spiritual <laughs> connection to the land is that uh, to get food, you have to go to the supermarket. Mm-hmm. You do not see where it comes from. You do not see the farmers that get the food for you. You have no sort of sense of connection to the food. It's purely energy. Um, yeah. And you don't have any gardens, you don't have any forests to walk through. Um, all the activities that you spend your time doing are either shopping, which is incredibly ecologically devastating, um, especially if it's an industry like fast fashion, if it's an industry like, um, I don't know, any other industry that's ecologically not very sustainable, which is, I think, most of them at the moment. But uh, so a, a, a realization is that professional classes, in the sense, have sort of been, uh, I guess, slowly. Uh, their ecological connection has been severed slowly yeah. but very severely to a point now where it sort of makes sense why or from that lens purely why action can be delayed um, because we don't really why would we care we don't we have completely we completely disconnected from it um, right but yeah on your point of uh, working class solutions um I completely agree about you know trying to sort of come up with substantive policy and having appealing policy as the as the number one thing just because you know a green new deal or you know sort of vague notions of we're going to resolve climate aren't sort of sufficient to win working class voters who are uncredentialed who may not have the who may not have the um the same experiences that professional classes do uh, coming to solutions now uh in Australia I think or even in New Zealand, agriculture takes up, I think, 30 to 40% of our emissions and then electric electricity, transport, and then heating are the next two really, really big players. And to me, these are really huge areas where working class solutions or Marxist solutions can really help fight against climate. And I'm wondering, you know, we were talking about solutions and you sort of mentioned transportation, but what are the solutions? How can socialism and Marxism help solve climate? Yeah. So the, I sort of articulating what I see as a kind of two pronged working class strategy. The first prong is what I was saying earlier is like a, a big uh, green new deal that, that, that invest in public investment, but also guaranteed, um, economic rights to things like transportation um by the way like in boston the mayor's uh, was a green new deal mayor and she's been trying to offer free public transportation as one of her things these are things that can can benefit and appeal to the whole working class if you will all of them but that's not enough from a marxist perspective we need a more targeted labor strategy in uh, a labor movement a union strategy that's in the sectors that we need to transform. Um, so the other part of my book sort of tries to sit, sort of map out how we could think about really targeting a particular types of sectors to organize workers in to fight for um, both decarbonization, but also increase unionization and worker empowerment in those sectors. 
I focus a lot um, on electricity in in the book because it's sort of the linchpin of decarbonization. You probably heard we have to really clean up electricity and then electrify other parts of the economy. And uh, in Australia, I'm sure it's the same as the United States. It's a very unionized part of the economy already. So you have sort of already existing organization and infrastructure to 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 build through. Um, and so I pay a lot of attention to that. But there are, of course, unions in transit, transportation and public transportation. I think already public transit unions are sort of one of the most vocal allies of climate action because they want to do things like expand public transit infrastructure, which would benefit the larger working class, but also benefit those unions, benefit those workers in those unions. Um, and, um, you know, agriculture is a is a sort of more dicey ones because it's become so capital intensive and automated that there's not a lot of uh workers and the workers that are in it are often some of the most exploited disposable immigrant workers that are that uh have tried union organizing in various ways but often struggle uh, but um uh you know certainly there are uh the capacity to build organization in that sector um more broadly, I think that solving climate change, unfortunately, is going to require a lot of building of new infrastructure, new energy technologies, new public transit, new housing. And therefore, I think there's an opportunity to really get on board all the what we call the building trades unions, all the construction unions, all the electricians, the carpenters, the people that actually do. And again, they're very culturally different from the professional class, the people that do manual labor in these trades, in these uh, construction industries, they uh, could be a real uh, lent, uh, sort of pivot uh, organizational force that could fight for a union-led green transition. One thing I've been really worried about and focused a lot on is that it, in, it, in the United States and other countries, the renewable energy industry right now is extremely not friendly towards unions, right? It's pretty much owned by Wall Street. It's very private, for-profit renewable energy developers who who hire extremely transient and precarious workers to do these sort of quick installations and construction jobs that um, aren't really conducive to very uh, effective union organizing. And so I think climate activists even can make a case to these unions in the electricity sector and the building trades that if you're not really organizing and thinking strategically about how to implant yourself and how to insert yourself into the energy transition, you could be really destroyed by kind of like Wall Street renewable energy capitalism that could just de-unionize a lot of the workforce. So uh, there's a lot at stake, I think, and, and the key is to try to get uh, the organizational power of workers and unions fighting for for uh, both their jobs and their members, but also for a big, big sort of investment regime of decarbonization. In one of our state recent state elections, not the state I'm in, but the uh, uh, the state of Victoria, which uh, the capital is the city of Melbourne, you probably heard of Melbourne as the Americans say, um, <laughs> uh, their recent Labour Party has won, I think, a fourth term or a third term. But basically, the 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 premier there. Or the, the or whatever the equivalent is in America, uh, uh, is basically one on one of his pledges is to be is to pop make the electricity uh, sector public again after a number of years. So it was privatized for I'm not too sure how many years for a very long time, and essentially after the uh, recent developments globally, 
and energy prices going through the roof, they recognize, yeah. well, we're going to make it public and, you know, reduce the prices. And to me uh, at, at the time, I mean, I thought it was, I thought it was, that's awesome. I mean, make things cheaper for people, but I mean, w- working it through the lens of your book um, to me, this seems like an incredibly successful solution because it is appealing not only to professional classes, but more importantly to the working classes where yeah. ultimately where political power is held as I see it. Um, and you probably agree. Um, agriculture, I wonder what you think about decentralizing solutions. So there's one solution which I've come across through reading on sustainability is regenerative agriculture, mm-hmm. whereby you basically dismantle this idea that you have huge factory farms, or huge industrial scale farms, and instead give power to the people to basically uh, regenerate agriculture, soil, wildlife, mm-hmm. uh, and much smaller scale farms. And not only is that ecologically friendly, but you're also, I guess, giving power back to the people. What, what do you think of those sort of decentralizing solutions for agriculture specifically? Yeah, so I I actually live on a farm. My wife runs a small organic farm. And so she, oh, that's great. But she, she, you know, and she tries to say that she just loves the work of it and is not trying to advance any kind of political agenda, but she gets sort of roped into this kind of mm, mm. uh very uh you know um local agricultural organic foodie type of networks and um i you know i i think there's a lot we can do to agriculture um that can really make it you know more sustainable and um i'm i'm maybe because i'm so embedded in the kind of professional class typical environmental leftist i've become kind of become allergic to the kind of uh uh sort of focus on decentralization and localism um because i do think at least for the climate we just it's such a massive huge problem and and we need kind of big solutions right um and um uh, I've been citing the. There's a famous political theorist named Jody Dean who had this quote that um, uh, Goldman Sachs doesn't care if you raise chickens, <laughs> and it's this sort of dig at like a lot of like local. Sometimes you know like anarchist solutions mm, where we're just gonna mm. like have urban gardens and we're gonna grow our own food. Well, like that is kind of fun and fulfilling. Like again, my wife would, loves this work and it's community building. And it's all this great stuff, but it, what does it do to actually challenge the power of those who are churning Mm. away and then in the corporate agricultural sector and just you know like maintaining their their power i think we have to think about that but Mm. uh, but to be honest like uh what you just mapped out for um uh a politics of public power and public electricity and recognizing that this this uh this sector and this this commodity if you will is too important to people's lives to be left to the market right to be left Mm. to the anarchic anarchic volatility of of price uh spikes and gouges so we really need to take control over this sector to uh subject it to more rational planning and mm. again cheaper provision for the working class i think that is a model that unfortunately isn't really entertained in the mm. food sector and agriculture we just sort of accept that of course food's a commodity you know in, in the us we try to say 
healthcare is a human right, but no one ever says that for food for some reason. Um, but I think trying to come up with maybe a, a mixture of, of yes, decentralized local um, vegetable mm -hmm. production with, I would say, mm -hmm. we, we actually are going to need like large scale, um, I would even say industrial like grain mm -hmm. production because the, the basis of any food system is actually the grains you're producing, like yeah. the, 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 the staple crops, like those are really like the foundation. And so mm -hmm. if you could, if you could conduct that kind of uh, production under uh, public ownership and public purpose to where the goal is to decarbonize it and provision it cheaper to the mm -hmm. workers. Like that's like a model that I uh, would be interested in exploring. Unfortunately, mm -hmm. like that our, our agricultural sector is just so thoroughly capitalist and so controlled by mm -hmm. these massive corporations. It's hard to imagine getting there, but that's the kind of model I'd like to mm -hmm. move toward or think toward in the long term. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, even when you, when you were talking about uh, making food a human right, I was thinking of um, Michael Pollan's book. Uh, I forget which the name of the title, but it's essentially focusing on the philosophy of food and eating and the history of eating, um, which sounds uh, doesn't sound particularly interesting at first. But um, uh, what I, as someone that loves cooking and someone that is very intimately tied to food. Um, and how it's very intimately tied to my historical legacy um, of my my immigrant parents, and mm -hmm. and then th th those recipes are descended from their parents. Um, to me, cooking is a, a very important experience. But what I thought was interesting from Michael Pollan's book is he talks about how in the '60s, uh, as the liberation of women's movement was happening, and cooking became a, an equal role, um, for, uh, corporations, particularly fast food corporations, stepped in and filled the niche of of uh, uh well you're both busy so why don't you just order food from us and help us make money which i thought was mm -hmm. quite interesting and sort of taking away um maybe not taking away but adding in some degrees also taking um power away from people to have nutritious food and all those sorts of things anyway that's sort of a, a strange tangent i didn't expect to take but um um yeah, I, I am. I'm very, I'm very hopeful for the future. Um, um, but also a lot of work is to be done. And to quote another academic, Simon Michaud, who's uh, he does geology at this University of Finland, I think, or university. Or some he says that the coming generation of people will have to be stronger or strong as strong, if not stronger, than the soldiers in World War Two. In the sense of that is how much political will, that is how much uh, mental strength that we'll need to sort of combat climate, given how it's so entrenched in uh, in capital, in capitalism. And as a sort of final point, uh, I wanted to touch on degrowth briefly. Um, mm -hmm. So I've been recently exposed to the cult of degrowth. No, I'm joking. But um, uh, I, 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 really, I, when I first came across it, I was like, "Wow, this is awesome!" And I, I sort of still feel that way, um, yeah. mainly because I think there's such a big appetite for alternative economic models. So much so, especially in the age of climate, I think a lot of, especially professional class people, are probably starting to feel, "Oh, this is not great," and especially working class people. Um. Uh, but like you said sort of earlier that you hinted is that a lot of degrowth, uh, at least the a lot of the the meta messages or the bigger messages sort of that come out of the movement is uh, is oriented around, I guess, anti-consumerism thought. Um, and when I first heard of the term and read Jason Hickel's book, 
um less is more which i i highly recommend recommend you read if you haven't read it um uh the first how i sort of organized my thoughts was sort of seeing it as like minimalism but in a political sense mm-hmm. uh and so to your point of it focusing on consumerism i would definitely agree with you um However, I wanted to touch on slightly push back on an on, on one of the arguments you've made, and correct me if I'm wrong, because I want to make sure I understand um, understand you correctly. So, I think one of the arguments you've made is that um, uh, in moments where degrowth focuses on the rich, it it seems to focus on the politics of less rather than focusing on solutions and solutions from individuals rather than focusing on collective action. Is that sort of would you say is a an argument you would make? Mm. I think that degrowthers have been uh, pretty good about, you know, um, fighting for what they often call universal public services. So, Mm. um, and, and I think some of them have had had very good critiques of kind of individualism of, Mm. uh, you know, you know, like uh, individualist environmental politics about thinking we can only affect things as our role as consumers. So, yeah, I, I don't, I think they're, they're, they're very, um, uh, uh, articulating a kind of uh, collective approach. Um, one of my issues is that, again, and I'll sound, uh, uh, again, my allergy comes into play. If you look at like the solutions that they often offer, they are these very niche, small scale. What the, uh, the new book that I have read called The Future is Degrowthy, they call them Nowtopias, which again are like urban gardens and communal mm. kitchens and little small scale uh, chicken raising operations that are, again, extremely gratifying to be a part of and community building. Um, but the real question in my book is about power and how are we going to build power? Mm. Um, you know, I recently read a piece by George, George's Callis, and I forget mm, the yeah. author. But it's just called degrowth in the state, and it just sort of the article starts off by saying like, well, degrowthers haven't really paid much attention to the state, and so this question of the state and state power and how we're going to win state power and mm. harness state power is something to be honest. And and they admit this in the article. A lot of degrowth literature and and political thinking comes out of the tradition of anarchism, which. If you're in that tradition, you know, you don't want to think mm. about the state. You think the state is the problem and you're very much against the state. Um, I come from a position that not only I come from a Marxist politics that thinks we have to think about seizing state power to to accomplish what we want to for our mm. goals, but also from a non-Marxist climate position, I find it very hard to understand how we're going to achieve the speed and scale of decarbonization without harnessing the power of the state. Cause it seems like, mm-hmm. you know, when we talk about a green new deal, we're actually hearkening back to the new deal, which was this incredible harnessing of state public investment and building. And you know, a lot of what they did was build huge amounts of electricity. They built mm-hmm. dams and hydroelectric power to deliver it to rural poor areas, which the private utilities had deemed not really profitable to serve. So, so, um, so I actually, mm. you know, I just come from a, a perspective that we need to think about state power. Mm. We need to think about power in a broader sense. And, and, and I don't see that kind of, uh, uh, thinking, right. uh, in terms mm. of like collective action from degrowth, uh, perspective. And the, the basis of my critique is, is much like the rest of the part on the professional class is like, these people really offer a really appealing politics to 
the already converted professional, highly educated, climate aware people. And so if you are in that space, you find, de- mm. like you were saying, you find degrowth politics is awesome. It's it's saying everything you think already, and it really resonates. And if you look at the people who are advocating degrowth, they're not just university educated. They often have PhDs. <laughs> they often yeah, are yeah. Either, either on their way to getting PhDs. So it's an extremely narrow group of people who really love this this framework. And it's mm. becoming more influential in the media and, the, and because the media is itself run by professionals. So, mm. and, uh, and, but um, I still, I think uh, <laughs> if you're talking to ordinary working class people who are dealing with those end of month mm. struggles and the people are like, we're going to degrow the economy. Yeah. We're, we're going to cut the work week by three days. <laughs> <laughs> well, that I think has always been a working class demand and that, that appeals, you know, shortening the work week, that's great. But um, mm. if you say we're going to reduce everyone's energy consumption in the global north, which is what they often say, for people that are struggling to pay their heating bill and 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 figuring out, like, are we going to pay the heat this month or pay the rent? Like, that that doesn't necessarily resonate, I think. I think, mm. um, uh, uh, again, this focus on, you know, one of the degrowth slogans is we need to live better with less, right? I think that appeals to a professional class that has enough that's comfortable that yeah that is anxious about the 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 stuff they already have and wants to think about how to reduce it and and downsize mm. it but for the masses people are struggling with not enough and they they yeah. need i think we need to have a politics that's clearly about what you have to gain what you're going to win and what what more you get from this kind of politics and and that's where i, I think there's um some sort of you know some somewhat rhetorical messaging mm. problems that i think that degrowth uh, has yeah i i definitely see what you mean by rhetorical just in the very uh, uh just i mean taking what uh, perhaps uh what i understand to be a marxist lens based on this conversation is that if you're not focusing on where um people's incomes are coming from uh or if you're not po- focusing on the i just get i guess the the power that is held by capital um ultimately climate change will continue to be a problem and so it is a matter of focusing on how to sort of I had, I'm, I'm sort of cautious of using the word dismantle because it sounds a bit revolutionary but maybe <laughs> maybe it's maybe it's apt but um focusing on shifting away uh and p- perhaps, as you said, looking at solutions that are uh, that are involving the state, such as you know making electricity public, in order to solve uh, climate. Um, I'm actually interviewing the author next week, um, so I'd love to. I'll correspond with you over email, but I'd love to get any questions that you have for for the future's degrowth um, for the oh, author, because cool. um, I want to pose some challenges because I I feel like I've been a uh, I've been enjoying the learning about it, but perhaps not challenging it enough. So anyways, that's a side tangent. But to wrap up, Professor, um, I wanted to ask you about Utopias. Uh, So the name of our podcast is called Utopias Now. Um, And we ask all of our guests the question of what would your utopia look like? Um, Mm. And this can be in as few words or as many words as you like, but really it's an exercise of, uh, I guess, imagination uh, and uh, understanding uh, what I find quite fascinating about the question is it really illuminates the values of our guests in a very vivid way. Um, but yeah, I wanted to ask you, Professor, what, is your, what does your utopia look like? 
So um, my one of my and not to not to beat a dead horse as it, as it <laughs> were, but one of my problems is I think degrowth people misidentify the real problem ecologically with our economy as one of growth when I actually think it's one of control. The problem is that the people that control our economy, that have the power to decide how our economy runs and what resources run into it and what energy we use, it's their power and control that's really limiting us from having a sustainable economy. And so my utopia is one in which the economy is actually democratized and we actually, the majority of, of people democratically run the economy collectively and try to plan the economy for human needs and I would add ecological sustainability. And that if we, I I would suggest that, um, you know, as from a Marxist point of view, if we were able to wrestle that control over the economy in the interest of the majority, we would first want to, you know, just from a standard point of view, like abolish poverty and make sure everyone has enough to live the basics of life um, and and so food and, and, you know, modern sanitation services, electricity, like these things should be universal human rights. And um, but also that people are able to participate in the governance of this economy and sort of, you know, collectively decide uh, and plan for what 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 how much energy do we actually need. So rather than just saying we need to consume less energy in the global north full stop, we actually should debate democratically like what is a good life, how much energy do we need really, and what would it take mm. to produce the type of good life that everyone deserves on this planet. And um, and and then of course, how do we do that, produce that while respecting the ecological systems that we all depend on, and also the you know uh, uh, the various uh, still existing peasant and indigenous communities that wanna you know, retain a certain, you know, um, local relationship with land and with a livelihood that would not necessarily want to be part of a large, sort of large scale planning for uh, a society. So, so <laughs> sort of rambling, but yeah, basically my utopia is sort of democratizing economic life. Well, I think that's a great way to wrap everything up. Um, I will speak with you just after recording, Professor, but thank you very much for joining me. And uh, if you, if people want to have a look about uh, about look at your book or want to find it anywhere, where can they find it? And, do, and if you'd like to promote any of your work, please feel free to do so. Um, if you just Google climate change as class war, that's it's just class war, not warfare. Just a little um, <laughs> uh, correction. But uh, if you Google Verso climate change as class war, it should come right up and. Um, I'm, uh, I have a website under Syracuse University, the Maxwell School, where all my publications are there. If anything is paywalled, just email me and I'll send you a PDF. And I'm on, maybe unfortunately, I'm on Twitter at, um, at MattHuber78. So. Well, thank you very much, Professor, for joining me today. It's been a pleasure and, uh, and uh, uh, look forward to a conversation in the futures. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for having me.